Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, the ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive in one way it's simple and one way it's a little bit complicated. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Keto Path. This is Dr. Goldcamp. Today we're actually going to review a topic that comes up again and again and again and again. Questions have been sent in about it. We've t- discussed it to some extent, but it's ubiquitous in the sense that it's in our food nearly all the time, and um, we just have to talk about it a little more at length. So this is about dairy again. This will be our third or fourth podcast on dairy, but I thought I would review some things and go into perhaps a technical level of understanding why dairy has its issues. And it's not just, oh, we have an allergy. I'm not even talking about if you're allergic to dairy at all. I'm talking about its effects. You know, why does dairy exist and what's the uh, what we presume is the evolutionary purpose for having dairy. So dairy specifically, in this case, I'll define it. It's all products that come from cow milk or bovine mammalian milk. Okay, it's similar to human milk. It's similar to sheep's milk and goat's milk. It's similar to all mammalian milk because one of the definitions of being a mammal is to have hair in your body and to be lactating and to be able to lactate. So, that's why it's that's why it's kind of a good, and I say that in quotes, runner-up for human milk. I really don't mean that sincerely, but that's why people go, why don't we just drink that milk instead of our mother's milk because we can't drink our mother's milk for a whole lifetime. And um, to give you a little context on this, the idea is what we call a paleolithic diet is a diet that pre- existed what we call the age of agriculture or the Neolithic time period. So that's about 10,000 years ago. What happened about 10,000 years ago? 10,000 years ago. And now it's just not hearsay, by the way. Now there's a lot of archaeological digs that go right down. I can find a certain uh, average height and weight of people uh, from the skeletons, you know, and what conditions they had. Did they have heart disease? Did they have arthritis? Did they have various other ailments? And um, it's totally fascinating, and that should be a podcast in itself. But I'm saying the mark is 10,000 years ago. Before that, grains, carbohydrates, were not consumed in very large amounts. And before that, cow milk products were not consumed. So domestic animals, such as semi-domestic animals, such as goats and sheep, and then later cows, did not exist. The animals existed, but we just didn't harvest them for their milk. So it was a fairly big change 10,000 years ago. We go, 10,000 years ago, that's a long time. Shouldn't we have all adapted to that change by now? That's a pretty good question. But if you uh, have watched the movie, which I think is pretty interesting, called The Miracle Pill, sorry, The Magic Pill, and there's a part of that that has an interview with a doctor, his PhD, um, Loren Cordain. And so uh, he's a proponent, and I think he's the one who's credited for most elaborating the concept of the Paleolithic diet and advocating what's the diet that we should be on. 
he got this idea from others as well, but he really has focused and done some pretty interesting research on it. So the um, idea is basically a diet that is devoid of grains and is devoid of milk. So that leaves you, what can you catch on the hoof or on a hook and a minimal of uh, veggies, more or less, that's left. And so that's the heart of the Paleolithic diet. There's a lot of definitions, by the way, for the Paleolithic diet. It it, it in itself is a movement that uh, precedes, in essence, in its popularity, the ketogenic diet. They overlap a lot, I would guess, that the uh, Paleolithic people were probably always in ketosis. So I think we're using the same group of people when we talk about these slightly different diets, the ketogenic versus the Paleolithic Okay, so back to the point about dairy. Why is dairy such an issue? The reason dairy is such an issue and that needs to be talked about a lot for two reasons. One is, so from my uh, physician's clinical practice perspective, I am coming away from, I know firsthand when people stop dairy, they have a remarkable change in their lives. Nearly 99.9% of all patients that complied with that request that I did make asked them to do, had remarkable changes. I was not sure why those changes happened. I knew that it would happen. And that's the point of a physician. He's not necessarily a researcher. He's the one, he or she is the one that implements a therapy for a particular patient that comes in with a particular situation in their life, a disorder, a disease, a discomfort. Could be lab work, could be something more subjective. So, um, based on lab work, that is. Okay, so that's that's what a physician does. A physician often does not know why things work. They have a list of what to do in certain situations. So they are um, kind of like a library. They know what books will contain the information, and therefore when somebody asks that question, they'll refer that book, right? But they may not know that book very well. Okay, so a researcher is very acquainted with all the books, but he has taken, he or she has taken no responsibility or has no part in implementing a particular therapeutic plan to a group of patients or any other people. So that's the difference. And I think it's an important difference because now after, you know, 16 years of clinical practice, I come away with saying dairy is significant and it created amazing changes in a, in a number of patients. Why was that? I didn't know exactly. I would have said, oh, it has to do with the casomorphines or I'm, I, don't, I think that's about as far as I went. So it's been kind of a quest to really drill down and find out more of, well, if it was so easy for so many people to make a change in their lives, their health lives by giving up dairy, what is in dairy? And, and is there a deeper understanding with what these issues are? So the answer to that is yes. I'm going to go through a couple of uh, studies, some abstracts, and hopefully not get too technical, and hopefully I'll just summarize it here, not get lost in the weeds of receptors and this, that, or the other thing. And so I want to give that perspective. I'm coming from, I know it's effective when people get off it, therefore why, as opposed to others sort of recommending, well, you know, if all else fails, give up dairy. They have no experience. You've asked any other doctor who's not a naturopathic doctor for the most part, and saying, do you ever ask your patients to give up dairy? 
And they go, no, no, it's, you know, they don't really don't have to. Um, there's other things we do. Well, the reason they say that is because they have no experience of patients getting off of dairy and just looking at their lab changes, looking at their, you know, their symptomology decreasing, whatever their issues were. So it's a lack of experience by most physicians. Therefore, it's not a very strong recommendation. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, okay, going deeper on dairy. What What is dairy? The similarities and differences. So obviously dairy is milk, is breast milk from cows. That's a bovine. That's a mammal. And it is from pregnant cows, obviously. That's why they're lactating. And it is designed to feed design meaning, quote unquote, designed, is developed to feed calves, big growing mammals, little baby cows. Okay. So why is that important? One is you have to come from the reference. You're getting this from a pregnant animal, a pregnant cow, and you're giving this to a newborn. Ideally, we're talking about the world at large, giving it to a newborn cow, calf, so the fact that it's newborn, just into the world, and it has no food in its digestive system, right? It's been developed in utero up until that point, in vivo, I should say, uh, at that point. And so now it's learning to eat. So it gets this highly nutritious fluid that is going to provide all these nutrients. And in that nutrients, it's going to be fats, it's going to be proteins, it's going to be hormones, and there's a number of hormones, and it's going to cause certain reactions, which is to support growth of a very big animal, okay? All those things make sense. So what would be in there? You'd have, obviously, a lot of estrogen. That comes from a lactating female mammal, which cross the board, whether you're talking about a lactating female, obviously females lactate uh, if they're pregnant, mouse versus human versus choose your favorite mammal, they would all have a fairly high degree of estrogen. That's who they are. That's where they are. What else would they have? They would have various amounts of growth hormone that may or may not be unique to that species. And so these various growth hormones, estrogen is obviously a growth hormone in a larger way of looking at things. It would have a thing called IGF, insulin-like growth factor dash one, IGF, insulin-like growth factor. So they all have IGF but they're all slightly different. However, bovine, cows, where we get our cow milk, that IGF is identical to human IGF. So that's a growth hormone. So please bear in mind, this milk is going to little babies. We need little babies to grow to bigger babies. So you go from neonate to puberty to, you know, how long does an animal stay breastfeeding? That's sort of an up in the air question. It probably depends on that particular animal. In humans, we have obviously milk from a human, and they have certain similarities, high estrogen, IGF, told you about, and um, has casein, a different kind of casein than from cows, and it has whey. So uh, one of the differences between human milk and cow's milk is that of all the protein in cow's milk, 80% is casein and 20% is whey. In humans, 80% is whey and 20% is um, casein. So the caseins are different, but we're just giving sort of bigger similarities and differences. They're both very high fat. 
and you get a lot of immune supporting things that the child, the child, the, the baby, the, the neonate needs your, your essence, what they say, you're getting a borrowed immunity from the mother's breast milk. That's why breastfeeding is so important. Other functions of milk and all mammalian species is to help establish the microbiome, that is the gut bacteria. And there's a big difference, as some of you may already know, between breastfed humans and non-breastfed humans and the development of their microbiome. And eventually, we believe, at least the studies and the uh, places I've gone to learn about this, is that you kind of get a parity after about three or four years that you should be somewhat similar. However, they find that non-breastfed humans have a higher degree of allergies, asthma in particular. So, okay, now back to cow milk. We're going to be focusing on cow milk. So when I say dairy, it just sort of say the obvious for some people, dairy does not include chicken eggs. Dairy is milk and all the products that come from milk. So whether that's yogurt or or ice cream, or milk, or cheese, or if I'm forgetting anything, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm talking about dairy and the components of dairy, which are fat, casein, and whey. Okay? All right. So we're going to focus on a few things that are in cow milk products that are disadvantageous to humans. And I'm not even going to talk about the allergenic part. If you're allergic to it, that's a separate issue. And for this pretend case, we're going to uh, talk about gra- grazed, grass-fed, healthy cows, and we're just having healthy cow milk. And we're not going to talk about the difference between raw or uh, pasteurized or homogenized. So, imagine, homogenized is when you blend it up so much that it no longer separates the cream to the milk. And the problem with that, I'm just giving you a little bit of background on that. The problem with that is that it makes these little mice seals, little fat pellets that are so hard to digest for humans that they think that is one of the causative reasons for uh, diabetes and other uh, gut issues in humans, just the homogenization process. We'll get to diabetes in a second. And the pasteurization is bringing everything up to a very high heat, a pretty high heat uh, for a brief period of time. And the thinking there is to cut down on various bacteria, and so therefore you would have less chances of picking up um, a bacterial infection. It basically, it, it um, cleanses the milk, quote-unquote, and it's kind of a controversy. The many states, 20 states specifically, allow raw milk. Another topic, but so that's it. We're not going to go into those two. We're just talking about, we'll say, um, pasteurized, homogenized milk that most of us have, and even raw milk. So what I'm the truths we're talking about today cross both of those. All right, now to the heart of it. The heart of it is this. The heart of it in milk is that if you were to have a, a little thermometer like I'm making up this tool and you went to the grocery store and you could punch through the top of those each bottle and find out how much estrogen was in each, whether it's paper or glass container of milk, you would find there's a variation of the level of estrogen you would find in cow's milk. And that's a big deal. High estrogen and high cow estrogen, which is pretty close to human estrogen, would have the same effect for the most part on humans. You also would have to measure IGF. IGF is a hormone in there uh, that is identical to humans. You would also, in some cows, you would have to look at 
cow milk, you'd have to look at whether there is additional growth hormone, simply called growth hormone, bovine growth hormone, which is, I can't remember if it's identical or not, very close to human, if not identical. I'd have to look that up. Small point. But another growth hormone. Okay. And you'd also have to look up, I mentioned that casein is 80% and whey is 20%. Whey, which is a big body bodybuilder supplements, right? When they have their whey powder before working out or after working out, uh, they know what they're doing. But I just want to say that whey is very insulinogenic. It's not glycemic. It doesn't kick up your blood glucose, but it does kick up your insulin. That's pretty interesting. Okay, which is insulin is a growth hormone. So that's kind of the big story here is the things that kick up insulin are growth hormones. So now you have insulin, you have IGF-1, you have estrogen, and you may or may not have a level of growth hormone. Sorry, yeah, well, growth hormone, bovine growth hormone in your milk. So got a lot of hormones in there, and um, which are very appropriate. When you think of the design of milk, now it's like in cow's milk, for calves, you would want something that's very nutritious, right? That gives them their, it's like their daily vitamin, if you will, as we now think of supplements. It's their daily nutrition of essential fatty acids or branched-chain amino acids, essential fats. Certainly a degree there's lactose, as we know, in there. So there's a degree of sugar in there. So it's their daily charge. But the interesting thing is of the casein, as you might remember from before talking about it, the casomorphine is the protein, and this goes for all mammals, the casein in that particular mammal's milk is digested like a protein. But when it gets to the stomach, a piece of that protein, a piece of that casein breaks off. And that little piece that breaks off is called a casomorphine. It's an opiate in essence. And it is, it's a string of amino acids. So it's a peptide of various types. And so they have all these listed, by the way. So all these casomorphines are listed. So you can almost look up what a mouse casomorphine looks like compared to a human and so on and so forth. But they all serve the same function. And the function is to hit the opiate receptors that mammals have. And that that gives that kind of euphoric feeling. You know, that's why morphine is given as a pain reliever and uh, heroin and so on. These are all opiates, all narcotics. And so they have that euphoria feeling and it is a drug. You drug the little cow, the little baby, the little mammal to, to uh, when it's breastfeeding, saying this is a good thing and you should be breastfeeding more, which is get these hormones, get these nutrients so you can become a young, a healthy young mammal. So that case of morphine is, think of the size of the mammal. So I don't know what the largest mammal is, but my guess is it's the blue whale. And after that, it's probably uh, an elephant. And after that, it's probably a horse or a cow or, I don't know, a gorilla. But the larger the mammal, for the most part, the stronger that addiction to the mother's milk has to be because it's a survival mechanism to get the baby to come back to the, to the breast to feed more. So if the baby didn't connect with, that's a good thing to do. In fact, what I, when I'm not breastfeeding, I don't feel all that good. You know, it becomes addicted to breastfeeding. That's a good thing. That's an evolutionary survival mechanism. Get the neonate to come back to the breast to have further nutrition and to grow correctly, et cetera, et cetera. Pick up all those 
goodies from breast milk. All right. Um, so one difference we have is there's a difference of the casomorphine in human milk. The same mechanism is in human milk. It's just not the same casomorphine. It's a little less potent, if you will. So that's a difference. The other is when you now have these growth hormones. So let me say apples to apples, the reason for breast milk is to help neonates, to help infants and toddlers to grow. And then it stops because growth doesn't go on forever. So milk is about growth. Lactating, breastfeeding animals are helping their kids grow. That's pretty much what you need to know. They don't grow forever. Adults have stopped growing a while ago. The question is, uh, we're going to get into adolescence in a second, but there's a certain point in which growth does not is not is not the objective. And if you keep giving growth hormones via milk past that period, you're going to have problems. And those are the problems that we have in drinking, eating all dairy products because they're full of those growth hormones. All right. Okay. So what we find, let's go through a few studies to verify Carl's sort of meandering on this topic. So here's the topic says evidence for acne promoting effects of milk and other insulinotropic dairy products. Insulinotropic simply means something that makes your insulin go up. So it talks about how, um, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because it'll sound like I'm getting lost in the weeds, but I think sometimes the wording from some of these studies is a lot better than I can come up with. So here you go. Acne vulgaris, a common skin disease of Western civilization has evolved to an epidemic affecting more than 85% of adolescents. So it has developed, meaning it did not always exist. It's now very, very high, and it wasn't very, very high before. Acne can be regarded as an indicator disease of exaggerated insulinotropic Western nutrition. So it can be regarded as uh, kind of the canary, the indicator disease, the canary in the minefield. You know what that expression is about, right? It's the first that you're going to see of something that kicks up insulin for a prolonged, sustained period of time in Western nutrition. Especially milk and whey protein-based products contribute to elevations of postprandial insulin, that means after eating insulin, and IGF plasma levels. So these are things that can be measured. It's not just, here's an interesting uh, reference. It is the evolutional principle of a million milk to promote growth and support anabolic, which means growing, developing, remember anabolic steroids, anabolic conditions for the neonate during the nursing period. So it's specifically designed through evolution to be the perfect soup, if you will, the perfect treat, the perfect the opiate for us little kids when we were little kids to have. Whey protein, proteins are most potent inducers of glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide secreted by blah, blah, blah. We'll go on. Basically saying it is very potent. So whey protein, back to the bodybuilders. Why do bodybuilders take whey? Why don't they take casein? They actually take both, by the way. Um, Whey is much faster. So whey is a lot of easily digested uh, amino acids. And so we have eight essential amino acids called branched chain amino acids. And uh, actually, the branched chain amino acids are four, say, leucine, isoleucine, valine, and um, so I guess it's just three amino acids. We have eight essential amino acids, so it's part of that. So the branched chain amino acids specifically, which are food for the liver, 
So it's easily digested. All the proteins are there. You know, it, it's, it literally is the baby food. So that makes your insulin go up very quickly. It affects all the major factors of acne. One being androgen receptor transactivation, meaning that all your androgen receptors get kicked in, get activated. It makes zits. The fancy word for making zits is comedogenesis. It has increased sebaceous gland fat secretion. It has increased follicular inflammation. It's follicles, your hair follicles, so it's inflammation on the base of your hair. The elimination of whey protein-based insulinotropic mechanisms of milk will be the most important future challenge for future nutrition. Okay, that makes sense. Restriction of milk consumption or generation generation of less insulinotropic milk will have an enormous impact on the prevention of epidemic Western diseases like obesity, diabetes, cancer, neurogenitive diseases, and acne. That's the abstract. Didn't want to go too much into that diet, uh, that diet, that uh, particular study. And that was, by the way, that was 2011. So these are not ancient studies. Here's another one. Milk disrupts P53 and another receptor. All the studies I'm going after, they will be linked up on the podcast. So you can go back in and read at length should you want to. I'm just skimming what I think is important. So these particular two receptors are very important. They are the guards, if you will, to all your chromosomes in your nucleus of your cells, except your red blood cells. So these two particular receptors, when they get unlocked, when they get disrupted, suddenly it makes all your chromosomes much more vulnerable. That's one of the reasons they think that milk, so you can take casein, whey, whatever, unlock, make your chromosomes much more vulnerable. This is just another implication. And let's see. Okay, there's an cumulative evidence that milk shapes the postnatal metabolic environment of the newborn infant. Yeah, okay. Based on this research, this perspective article provides a novel link between milk intake and gene expression of these particular receptors. Okay. And... Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you have questions about food and farming, check out Ask a Farmer. We share information about Canadian-grown food from dietitians, food experts, farmers, and those involved in the agriculture industry. Explore how your food is grown and raised and get useful information to help you make confident food choices at the grocery store. I'm your host, Clinton Monchak, a Canadian farmer. You can listen to the Ask a Farmer podcast on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Specifically, these receptors are associated with acne and prostate cancer. So they're picking out two conditions. It's no longer a general statement. It's being very specific about cancer and acne. So you can look at, you know, who gets acne? Well, we think of adolescents getting acne uh, on, on their back, on their face, wherever. And it is, it is. if you can remember your adolescence, um, it was not the fun thing to have. It was uh, made you very self-conscious. I think that goes across the board. And you can see even adults nowadays that had gone through such acne that their faces permanently sort of pot-marked. They've, they've obviously, you know, survive and go on and have their life, but you can see that's how bad their acne was for that time. Okay, so there's that. And so that was 
2017. So that's new information. Linking diet to acne, metabolomics, inflammation, and zit formation. Comedogenesis. Updates. So this is from 2015. And this is acne, vulgar, acne vulgaris, an epidemic inflammatory skin disease of adolescence is closely related to the Western diet. Major food classes that promote these are hyperglycemic carbohydrates, milk and dairy, and deficient omega-3 fatty acids. Isn't that interesting? Diet-induced insulin, an insulin-like growth factor, signaling. By the way, um, insulin and insulin-like growth factor 1 they are coupled together because they are chemical structures that are very similar to each other, but they can hit each other's receptors. And mostly it's insulin-like growth factor can link up to the same receptors as insulin, which are all over your body, by the way. And nearly every cell in your body has an insulin receptor. So IGF-1 can activate these receptors, maybe not as strongly as insulin, but it can do that. So that's why they're linked together and they go insulin, insulin-like growth factor. They consider kind of one entity in a lot of studies. So it's diet, diet-induced insulin, insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1 signaling, is superimposed on elevated IGF-1 levels during puberty. In other words, you already have high IGF-1 levels because it's about growth. Your own body is saying, oh, time to grow. It's going to, it automatically secretes. And where does IGF come from? Uh, basically, it's pituitary that signals, activates the liver to make IGF-1. So that's where that comes from. So you're already producing IGF-1. Uh, another interesting thing is that, uh, as I told you, the IGF-1 in cow milk is identical. And so when that comes to, you know, you're, you're digesting it. So it goes down to the stomach and intestines. It goes off into um, the bloodstream that goes directly to the liver. And the liver doesn't break it down. The liver sees it as the signal, IGF-1, and it now makes disproportionately more. It's a trigger to produce more uh, IGF. So now you've had, it's way more than double. It's a multiple of growth hormones that are being kicked off because the IGF-1 is identical in cow milk. Isn't that interesting? So therefore, this is one of the reasons you get acne, but you're going to get all these other more subtle and perhaps long-term, call it latent or slowly developing uh, problems, whether they're cancer or diabetes or cardiovascular, which is really secondary to diabetes in most cases. Okay, so Western diet provides abundant branched-chain amino acids, glutamine, Insulin uh, gets kind of technical. But one of the things that that comes up again and again is that insulin, IGF-1, branched-chain amino acids, glutamine, they can target, and I'm going to use another fancy word, they call it mTOR. mTOR is a receptor, and you can hear it more and more and more. Uh, The story of how it was discovered is pretty interesting. But it hits this mTOR. mTOR is... It's the growth factor. It's like the it's the nexus. It's the one receptor. When you trigger that, it then begins a cascade of making a lot of different tissues grow across the board. So it's it's the big the big receptor to hit. And so consequently, you you have acne overgrowth. And so we go with that. So um, trying to leave out all the technical. These are good studies to read. I encourage people to jump into it. But now we have 
IGF gets disproportionately amplified, you know, a lot more is made. That goes on and hits mTOR. mTOR then is about muscle and is about making a lot of things grow, but not and, and not everything needs to grow, just certain tissues need to grow. And that's one thing. The other thing is you don't always need to be growing. Your body doesn't always need to be growing like a neonate, you know, or an adolescent. Uh, when you get into adults, it's more about maintaining and m- maintaining the quality of the tissues you have in your body. Uh, not about making them bigger. You don't want your muscles always to get bigger, bigger, bigger. And and so that's, that's so one is about timing in your life. When could you, if you were to justify having milk? Well, if you're born as a baby, breast milk obviously is appropriate to have as a neonate and a toddler. Uh, you don't have that into adolescence. However, that has been in the West. You not, it used to be you used to have a lot of milk. I grew up on milk. Now people have less milk, but they have more dairy products, more cheese, more everything else. And so in essence, they are getting the same effect of these growth hormones, perhaps forever in their life. And does that make sense? So those are the questions, two questions that you need to be sort of looking at. Apart from estrogen as well. So it's estrogen, IGF, and insulin. Another one, impact of cow milk on mTOR signaling and the initiation and progression of prostate cancer. So, so prostate cancer is dependent on androgen receptor signaling, signaling and aberrations of the pathway, mTOR pathway, mediating excessive and sustained growth signaling. That means it is just always on. There's not a rhythm to it or there's never an off time. And that mTOR is up, upregulated in 100% of advanced prostate cancer in humans. Epidemiological evidence points to an increase of dairy protein consumption as a major dietary risk factor for the development of prostate cancer. mTOR is a master regulator of protein synthesis, fat synthesis, autophagy, pathways that couple nutrient sensing uh, cell growth and cancer. Impacts of cow milk mediated mTOR signaling and the initiation of progression of prostate cancer. So it goes on and on. So those are just reading the titles and a little bit of the abstracts. One one topic that I wanted to elaborate on, one paper I want to elaborate on, is called the overstimulization of insulin and IGF signaling by Western diet that may promote diseases. So that's kind of the concept we've been presenting so far. But they look at a population of people that were born without receptors to insulin-like growth factor and growth hormone. So it's almost like they don't have, or they, they, they have no function for growth hormone and IGF in their lives because they can't, they can't process it. So it's, it's a non-entity. In research, the reason they do mice research so much is because there is a whole industry of developing mice that have a genetic deficiency for a particular thing you're trying to test. So it's like what they call a knockout mice. You know, you have a mouse that does not have this receptor and they use that as the contrast with mice that do have the receptors and find out what's, what's the difference in this population when you feed them a diet or feed them a drug. So it's pretty interesting. So this is a natural population of humans that don't are in essence, are in essence like knockout mice. Um, they do not have a particular receptor. So they are, uh, it's pretty interesting. Let's see if I can just skim it without reading too much of it. The insulin, insulin-like growth factor signaling pathway is 
drives an evolutionarily conserved network that regulates lifespan and longevity. So what that means, and it's an important statement, is that um, there's a statement that I've heard, I can't remember, there's a truism since it's been passed on by a lot, is that your body is either about growth or it's about maintenance. And so when you hear people talking about longevity, I, I want to do, I want to find all the right supplements for my longevity, or I want the right lifestyle, the right diet for longevity. That's about maintenance. That's about making sure that all the old cells in our body do indeed die and get, you know, taken out with our uh, detoxification system into the urine and stool. It's not about growth. And so the more things that are in your diet, that are stimulating growth, you know, how even environmental toxins fall into this group as well. But the more stimulus that you have in your environment, in your gut, whether it's food or whatever, that are stimulating you to grow, the more likely you're going to be growing cancers, various cancers. So I can be very specific on on an item, but that's a generalization. So you're either about growth or you're about maintenance. So obviously part of your life, I was talking about that timing before, part of your life is about, yes, it's about growth. When you're a little little child, you want it to grow. You want it to grow into a bigger child. But there's a point in which most of the growth is over or the growth just gets finessed onto a certain few organs as they, you know, not the whole body has to be growing. So there's that uh, distinction of what should be growing, what should not be growing. But eventually you grow into just the maintenance phase. So those two purposes are at odds with each other. So individuals with Laron, L-A-R-O-N, syndrome who carry mutations in the growth hormone receptor that lead to severe deficiency with decreased insulin and IGF signaling, so they kind of don't have the signal at all, they're just the opposite of people with dairy and everything else, exhibit reduced prevalence rates of acne, diabetes, and cancer. So Western diets with high intake of hyperglycemic, high-refined carbs, and insulotropic dairy overstimulate the pathways. So they're just the opposite. So in essence, it's this uh, group of people. So what happens with these people? Well, it ends up that they have fewer, really interesting, uh, let me just read, 99 Equatorian individuals with their own syndrome due to growth, grew to this problem, did not develop type 2 diabetes, and were almost free of cancer in contrast to their healthy relatives with normal insulin, you know, that uh, had the insulin and IGF signaling. Then in a recent worldwide survey of 230 individuals with Larone syndrome did not develop cancer. And um, so that's interesting. So what they find is that these, this population of these people with this particular mutation are devoid of, they don't have acne, they don't have type 2 diabetes, they don't have any cancers. Um, and, and that's an amazing difference. They also, since we've been having growth, right, all this is about growth, so you know, if you have the receptors and you're having all that dairy, you're getting growth, 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 is that uh, the difference primarily are is that without that aspect, that you will have, without those receptors, you will be, I won't say growth less, but I'm leaving you to fill in the word before I get there. They are smaller. There's a higher uh, increase with dwarfism. And you can say, well, those that have a mutation that have an oversensitive uh, growth 
receptors, what they call agromegaly. Those are the giants. So you have, now we have kind of this human experimentation that does exist in the world that shows us the value of growth hormones. It ends up those giants, those, those with agromegaly, don't live very long. Uh, they do die of various cancers. They're much more likely to have type 2 diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. So we now see that scale. Most normal, quote unquote, we all have variations in the middle. Um, it falls to diet. So we have the mechanism. We have the active receptors. And a lot of our diet stimulates growth, growth, growth. So we end up being more towards the agromegaly uh, class of people, kind of people that have a higher incidence of diabetes and cancer and so on and so forth. That's the point I'm trying to make. And uh, so those with Western diets, we have increased linear growth, meaning, you know, height, tall people, high oxidative stress, pro-aging signaling, high prevalence of acne, diabetes, cancer, prostate cancer. Those that had this particular Delarone syndrome, they have reduced linear growth, so their dwarfism, low oxidative stress, anti-aging signaling, low prevalence of acne, diabetes, and cancer. So the question that most are wondering, well, do they live forever? I mean, so this whole idea, it sounds like they, you know, they'd be great. I have high rates of longevity. Not necessarily. They live about the same length of time. So where does that put you? That puts you to the appropriateness of growth hormones during that part of your life. So now let me change again a little bit. So as we get older, all of us, as we get older, and you can look this up, it's your growth hormones, your IGF, and growth hormones decline with age. So you're probably thinking, well, don't you want more of it? Shouldn't you have more of it? Um, well, no, you shouldn't have more of it, but there's ways to maintain it naturally. So when you go work out, you create your own growth hormones. for In order for your muscles to grow, because you've lifted weights that were at your limit, and you struggle momentarily with weight-resistant workout or high-intensity training workout, that that in itself is how you would generate growth hormones. Um, somebody would probably say, well, that's when you should have dairy with all those growth hormones in the dairy. I should have it when I'm older because I'm low. Well, no, careful with that thinking because you're back to growing cancers. So uh, a little bit is good, a lot is not. And in terms of growth hormones, we're going to get into this with fasting in another podcast, maybe the next one or the one after that, is that there is a sweet spot with growth hormone. They call it the Goldilocks. You know, uh, too little is a problem and too much is a problem. So you're looking for that sweet spot. So that's that's why this is such an interesting issue. So to summarize all this is that when people ask, what's the problem with dairy? Well, apart, apart from the fact whether you have an allergy to dairy or not is you have some potential long-term problems. The dairy would do nothing but fuel your metabolism for the worst, and that would be diabetes, and that would be uh, various cancers. Certainly it would be acne and prostate cancer. Those are the most documented, uh, but they are uh, merely the, the first of many that are getting more and more associated. So that's why it's a big deal. And so for me, in my quest for understanding all this and saying, you know, after 16 years and everybody who took away, uh, eliminated dairy for two months and then reintroduced it and then decided whether they wanted to eliminate it again or not, is that that improvement was about the growth hormones. It wasn't taking away an allergenic food for them. It was taking away these various growth hormones, the estrogen, the IGF, the 
the insulotropic effects of whey in particular, and certainly with casein. So that's what happened. Um, I could argue there are some good aspects to dairy, you know, saturated fats and so on, but you have to take the whole package. You can't pick and choose. So I'm not saying it's all bad, but I'm saying it's mostly bad because these are the effects of our diet. So if we lived in a world in which we had fresh, raw dairy and we had veggies and so on, would it be much different? I think it would still come down to how much dairy did you have on a regular basis. And I think you'd be better off without it. It's tough to say because there's other good things in dairy. And the other reason I bring this up is because, you know, this is called the keto naturopath. What the heck does this have to do with ketosis and the ketogenic diet? Well, it has a lot to do with it because dairy is highly recommended by many uneducated promoters of the ketogenic diet. They call it the ideal ketogenic food because it's high fat. Now we're talking about cheese primarily, not milk. And, um, and enough protein and low or no carbs, especially in the case of cheese. Well, that's not the whole story. And I think that's a dangerous, ignorant piece of advice to give. So that's pretty much what promoted me to have to make such a issue on this and to go a little deeper. So the IGF, the estrogen, uh, the insulin tropic factor of whey, uh, all these have a big punch that you don't need on a regular basis. And um, I think I said that point enough and again and again. Let me go through just some of these. This is such a well-written, um, just going to read the headlines, well-written uh, study, you know, insulin and IGF for type 2 diabetes, insulin signaling in cancer, insulin signaling in acne, insulin... Western diet uh, potentiates insulin and IGF signaling. I've always said this, but we're saying it again. Exaggerated insulin and IGF signaling by Western diet and type 2 diabetes. Milk consumption after weaning maintains high levels of insulin and IGF signaling, persistently stimulating pancreatic B-cell proliferation. So your B-cells and your pancreas are the ones that produce the insulin. So that simply is giving a finer definition to what insulinotropic is. It stimulates your beta cells. Continued overstimulation of pancreatic B cells by whey protein after the post-weaning period may continuously be a problem. Increased proliferation and apoptosis of B cells during lifetime are hallmarks. In other words, you burn out your pancreas. Well, here's something that's pretty interesting, is that for all of us, we all have our various mutations, okay? So some are for good and some are for bad, and we got them due to our ethnicity and what our where our forebearers lived, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a thing called singular nuclear polymorphisms. We call them SNPs or SNPs. And so you can have SNPs that could help you and you could have SNPs that might not help you. So they find that um, those who have SNPs that, you know, some could be a special risk for developing all these issues given these kind of foods of dairy. And because they're now you know, more sensitive, they have some mutations. And others might be a little bit like the, the RAIN syndrome. They have a more blunted effect by uh, dairy and the uh, uh, the whey and the IGF. And so it's interesting. So they find subpopulations that are, by degrees, closer to the RAIN, a little improvement on the longevity side of thing, or closer to the acromegaly, a little 
too sensitive and, and pro-growth very easily. So there's a spread there, and I actually list out all the different polymorphisms. I'm not going to get into that, but I'm just saying it's a concept out there, and that's one of our, that's why we're not all the same. So I'm giving you one big principle, but I'm also saying we have our sensitivities that are could be better or could be worse. But as a whole, uh, um, this is what we're doing, that we're all pretty similar. Okay, I guess the last thing is, and it's sort of repetition, it says access to higher amounts of insulinotropic and IGF raising foods, sugar, grains, dairy, occurred about 10,000 years ago during the Neolithic Revolution. It was further augmented by the industrial, what I consider the, we're now into the food, uh, the food industry. You know, now we have so much processed foods that has become even more insulinogenic and even more IGF prone. So, this is sort of the issue that we're faced with. The diet has a lot to do with our particular ailments. And um, interesting summary. So with that, I think I've sort of perhaps perseverated on the point more and more and more. I didn't mean to go that far, but it's a big deal. It's not so much, oh, I think I'll try dairy. I think I'll try it. not dairy. It really aggravates me. I was about to go to a ketogenic um, weekend uh, of topics, and they were going to be giving grilled cheese to everybody. You know, that was going to be their automatic default food for everybody. I'm thinking, what what a moron. You know, their thinking was that superficial. And obviously, there's a lot of people in the ketogenic pool of quote-unquote authorities, uh, gurus, if you will. And I think that's fine. I think the word should get out on the ketogenic diet. You know how I feel about it. I think it's highly valuable. So the number one thing I, I would have everybody do and then work from there. But I think that's a by not covering the downside of what dairy actually does and and is, and I even talk about the environmental. I mean, other chemicals that are in food that we actually have. If you went to the grocery store, it's a whole nother level. So on that, um, hope you got something out of it. Hope you'll take some action, and um, I hope you're doing well in your ketogenic journey. Till next time, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.